Welcome to the Catholic Leaders Podcast, where we talk with inspirational leaders and explore how faith informs leadership. I'm Carrie Robinson, a member of the board of Leadership Roundtable. And I'm Kim Smolik, an executive partner at Leadership Roundtable. Leadership Roundtable is a ministry of hope for the church, founded to promote best practices in leadership and management. We're so excited to have you join us today. So click the subscribe button and let's get started. Carrie, it's so great to be with you. We have such an incredible guest with us this week, Nicola Brady, who is the General Secretary for Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. And she really gives us a perspective, a global perspective on what's happening both in the church and what's happening in the world as it relates to what's most germane to her work, which is peace building. I was incredibly impressed and inspired and actually consoled by her words and her work. When we look at what is happening across the globe in Ukraine and in in a particular way in the Holy Land right now, it is so clear that the lessons she has learned about bringing people of different denominations, different faiths together, to sow the seeds of peace is multi-generational work. Carrie, I think it's also important for our listeners to know that we had this conversation with Nicola before the Israel-Hamas war broke out, but the things that she shared with us about peace building are so relevant to what's happening in the world right now, as you mentioned. Absolutely. It makes this particular conversation all the more meaningful in light of what has happened. It also is striking to me how relevant this conversation is to our focus on the synod and learning how to live synodally. Peace building and the synod are both predicated on deep, sincere listening and, and a disposition of being other-centered. And those two things really struck me about our conversation with Nicola. I couldn't agree more. She said to us, every conversation counts. Don't underestimate the value of personal outreach and your willingness to ask pastoral questions and listen. And that theme of being present and listening is core to the synodal process. It's what we keep hearing that what feels transformative and is creating connection and community, both in the synod process in Rome, but also in communities across the globe. And it's something I think, it sounds so simple, yet it requires a dedication and a sense of presence to the other person that is so core to our faith and our relationship with God. Carrie, on this topic of peace building, it's always inspiring to hear about ways people are actually getting that done and the commitments they've made. And last week, you were part of awarding the Opus Prize to an incredible peace builder. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, just this past week on the campus of Villanova University, the Opus Prize for 2023 was awarded. Three finalists were celebrated. This is an annual million-dollar humanitarian prize that recognizes a person of faith, any faith. It's very uh, diverse in terms of the faiths that are identified and lifted up. Uh, And it recognizes one's 
commitment to bringing faith to bear on alleviating human suffering all across the globe. And I was just thrilled that this year's laureate was Bishop Paride Taban of South Sudan in recognition of his work in the midst of a terribly long and violent civil war, he created and founded the Holy Trinity Peace Village. His insight was to find the most isolated, desolate, war-torn part of South Sudan, an impoverished country, and his commitment was if he could demonstrate to the world that peace could exist here, then it could exist anywhere. What it does is focuses on education, agriculture, addresses food scarcity, brings about 11 or 12 tribes together around common purpose. There are so many beautiful lessons to be learned of his work and his legacy. Clearly, peace is peace building is essential to all of humankind in every part of our world. His work is so inspiring, and it really just points us back to the conversation that we had with Nicola, who has dedicated her life to peace building. And it's such an honor for us to be able to spend time with leaders who have a vision of peace and hold that for all of us to participate in. Even when so many incredibly heart-wrenching things are happening in the world. So we really want to thank, honor, and lift up leaders like Bishop Taban and today, Nicola Brady and our conversation with her. Welcome back to the Catholic Leaders Podcast. We are delighted to have with us today Dr. Nicola Brady. Nicola is the General Secretary of the Churches Together in Britain and Ireland and Joint Secretary of the Irish Interchurch Meeting. She holds a BA in European Studies and a PhD from Trinity College, Dublin. Nicola specializes in faith based peace building, human rights advocacy, and reconciliation. She is also Vice Chair of the Board of the Christian Aid Ireland and member of the Board of the Maximilian Kolbe Foundation. As an Eisenhower Fellow, she developed the capacity of the faith sector to foster social cohesion in divided communities. Nicola currently chairs the steering committee for the Synodal Pathway of the Catholic Church in Ireland. Nicola, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a real joy to be with you. We're thrilled to have you on our podcast, Nicola. Many of our listeners are based here in the United States and may not be familiar with organizations like Churches Together in Britain and Ireland or the Synodal Pathway of the Catholic Church in Ireland. Before we dive into some more specific questions, can you please just tell us a little bit about these organizations, how you came to be a leader in each of these, and the work you are currently doing? Certainly. Well, there are still quite a few people on these islands as well who are not very familiar with Churches Together in Britain and Ireland or the National uh, Synodal Pathway for the Catholic Church in Ireland. 
So I often find myself having to explain both my job titles wherever I go. So I'll start with my full-time role. So I am General Secretary of Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. This is a special ecumenical instrument for the churches across these islands. So we have national ecumenical bodies for England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales that bring together the Christian churches there. But in this context, we also have a special body that recognises the importance of British-Irish relations because of our shared, often complex, often difficult history and the ties that bind Christian communities across these islands today that have made an important contribution in all sorts of areas, um, particularly the peace process in the island of Ireland. So basically what I do is provide a forum for Christian leaders to come together on a British-Irish basis to build relationships primarily, to look at ways together in which they can bring a collective Christian witness to the public square and engage together in advocacy and pastoral outreach on issues of shared concern. So it might be issues around poverty, the current cost of living crisis. It might be around threats to the peace process or social cohesion. So recently we've been working quite a bit in the aftermath of Brexit and the changing relationships there. And very often it's about the the place of faith in society, the role of the church in a changing public square and engagement with people of other faith traditions as well. So that's my day job and I come to that from a background of many years working in the area of ecumenical relations, first on the island of Ireland and now in the British-Irish context. So I think because of that experience where so much of the work in ecumenism is around creating the conditions for good dialogue and a dialogue of difference, a dialogue that's based on not just a recognition and acknowledgement, but a real appreciation of diversity. For that reason, the Irish bishops asked me to head up the initial two-year phase of the National Synodal Pathway for the Catholic Church in Ireland. So the bishops decided in 2020 that they were going to launch a synodal process for the church in Ireland. And in doing this, I think they were responding really to developments on a number of levels. So you had in the universal church, Pope Francis giving really strong leadership in this area, really seeking to develop the synodal capacity of the church, opening up the synod of bishops structure to include as many different voices as possible to expand the outreach but also at local level in the church in Ireland particularly where local congregations parishes and dioceses were attempting to come to terms with the fallout from the abuse crisis the horrific crimes that were exposed, the abuses of power that contributed to that and were closely connected to it. One of the methodologies and approaches that they were looking towards was the synodal style listening sessions. 
trying to include more people, particularly those voices that for whatever reason were unheard in the local context. And so where these processes have been working well at local level, there was a call then to to build on this and to develop a, a national process for the church. And so the bishops announced a commitment to do this with a five-year lead-in time. So for the first two years to be spent in listening and discernment and exploring with people at all levels of the church, first of all, what a synodal process might offer to the Catholic Church in Ireland, given the context in which we find ourselves, the unique experiences of our history, the challenges that we face, some of which are perhaps unique, some of which are shared with the church all around the world. And then building on this to think about what that might mean in practical terms and how it could be structured and resourced. So they put together a steering committee to guide this work for these two years. They asked me to chair it, which I did alone for the first year. And then in the second year, we moved into a co-chairing model. So I now share the responsibilities with a parish priest from the Diocese of Meath. He's also the diocesan lead for the synodal process in his diocese, Father Declan Hurley. So we moved to a co-chairing model because we feel that better reflects the synodal process. So we try as much as possible in what we're doing to have balance between male, female representatives, clergy, lay perspectives, and to to bring in as as wide a range of voices as possible. So I've been doing that for the last Mm. two years. It is so obvious. um, What was obvious to both Carrie and myself when we met you and we learned about your work, about how incredibly impressive um, you are and your leadership journey has been. And you've really touched on, even in that opening, many of the topics we want to go deeper with. Um, and I, I'm just going to start with one of them, which is the Synod, um, which is some uh, something we've been involved in and are deeply committed to, and I know that you are as well. So could you tell us just even a little bit more about your involvement in the Synod in Ireland? Um, you hold, as you mentioned, this important uh, steering I'm calling it important, but this role on the steering committee. I'd I'd like to hear a little bit about how you're seeing this synod impact uh, people, individuals, how you're seeing it impact leadership, and maybe even how it's personally impacting you as a leader. Well, when I agreed to take on this role, I really could not have imagined where we would have ended up now. So I was asked to do this by the bishops on the basis that I had worked with them to create spaces for dialogue before, often dialogue on very sensitive issues, particularly related to our peace process and issues of political instability and sensitive issues around political negotiations in Northern Ireland. Um, And also because I worked across different Christian denominations in preparing those dialogues as well. So they were drawing on that experience of bringing in different voices, people coming from different perspectives, different experiences. And when you're talking about the Northern Ireland peace process, you're talking about a context where 
people are bringing lots of hurt into the room as well, experiences of great loss and suffering, experiences of victimization, perceptions about the other, feelings of alienation. So for all of those reasons, they were asking me to, to help put in place something and help to design something that would allow us in the context of the synodal process in Ireland to explore the hurt that was there in the church, the feelings of alienation, but to do so in a way that was very much focused on the future, the hope for what the church could bring, and in a context of a society that is increasingly fractured and fragmented, as is experienced in so many contexts around the world, not least the US. So feeling that the church has something important to offer in that context, but our failures to engage in self-critical reflection around the role of the church and the times when the church's contribution has been negative in terms of social cohesion, protection of the rights and dignity of each and every person, particularly the most vulnerable, that those failures have been holding us back. And so it was certainly something very future focused that we were being asked to do, but grounded in the recognition that there's a need to reckon with the past feelings that have caused such hurt and such weaknesses within the church in terms of its leadership. When we were setting out on this, we didn't know what was going to happen with the Universal Synod. It had been announced, but we didn't know the detail of it. And as more and more emerged, we realised that for the first time, there was going to be this really in-depth engagement right down to the level of the local parish. So that was both daunting and exciting for us. We realised that we were going to have to integrate our process with what was happening at the level of the Universal Synod. So there was the uncertainty of that, but then we saw all these really great resources and supports emerge from the Vatican Synod office. Every diocese across Ireland responded to the call to engage with the Universal Synod so that all set up teams, there were opening liturgies, they all announced a range of different events and ways to engage with the synod process. So what we did as a steering committee, and we also have a four-person task group, which works directly with the diocesan leaders who've stepped up to facilitate and organize synodal events. We decided that we would support them provide opportunities for them to come together, build peer support networks for local leaders, help to be a bridge between them and the Vatican Synod office. So alert them when things were coming down the line, help gather you know, any questions they may, might have in their reception of these materials, questions about how they could use them, mm -hmm. help fill in the gaps in terms of people's formation and preparation, which was quite significant. This is not a well-developed practice in the Irish church as in many places around the world. And so people needed a lot of support to find an entry point 
to the process and to really engage with the material and to get a sense of of where it might go. So we were engaged in support work at that level, a lot of listening, and then our steering committee worked with the Bishops' Conference to design a process to bring together the diocesan synthesis documents and others that have been prepared by religious congregations and other movements and associations and to create a process where we could have real engagement right across dioceses and other groups in the preparation of the national synthesis. So we organised a pre-synodal assembly, which took place in June of last year, and we brought together representatives of the diocese and movements and associations with the bishops. And we had a day just of listening, reflection, discernment, and then we finished off with a beautiful liturgy in Clonmacnoise, which is an ancient mm-hmm. monastic site. We did a prayer walk through Clonmacnoise, where it basically symbolized the fact that this monastery in its heyday was once the sending point for the Irish Church's missionary endeavor in Europe and the wider world. And the monastery itself is now in ruins. The face of the church, the role of the church's place in society has changed drastically and is changing. But there is a live worshipping Christian community, which today looks very different, but is very committed to journeying together and bringing the light of our Christian faith to this changed and changing reality. And so we symbolise that through a prayer walk with lots of different voices at different stations, a renewal of baptismal vows. And that was an incredibly Mm. hopeful and uplifting day. And one of the big surprises was how much interest there was in the secular media and what was happening. So people were really taken with the Catholic Church's efforts to grapple with challenges of cultural transformation. And there was a lot of very positive engagement with the honesty of the listening and reflection that later then came through in the the national synthesis that we published. So all of that has been incredibly hopeful. Mm-hmm. Not to take away in any sense from uh, the many shortcomings and challenges that we're still very aware of. So what came through very strongly on the day from the local leaders who were there was the sense in which there are still lots of voices who haven't been heard yet in our process. Lots of people that we haven't reached. Lots of people who are regular mass goers, very devoted to their faith and just are not interested in the synodal process. It has not yet connected with them. It's just not how they see church and they don't really see a value in it. So we think lots of work to do there to engage people and to help make sure that they feel that the invitation is is reaching them and that they have all the supports they need to, to take part. And then people who are very concerned that the synodal process is aimed at changing church teaching and will undermine for them the the foundations of their faith and concerns that it'll be a negative process in which they're not able to express why their faith is, is precious to them and what it means to them. 
So we worked hard at that. And at the moment, we've been focusing on engaging with those local leaders who have done Mm -hmm. so much. And we've just completed some research where we went back and asked Mm -hmm. them to reflect on the experience, tell us what they'd learned so that their learning could inform the next steps for Ireland's national synodal process. It sounds like you're really uh, practicing what Pope Francis is calling us to, which is to be a listening church. And uh, you've, we've talked a little bit already about listening. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on what would it take or what will it take to enculturate listening as a core way of relating in our church? And not just church leaders listening to members of uh, the body of Christ, but it to be really part of how we relate with each other. Well, I can share with you some of the things that have come through in that research with the local leaders. So first of all, they find the listening sessions themselves to be incredibly positive experiences. They describe them, in fact, as being deeply spiritual, sacred experiences. They felt a real sense of connection. So there's something there, I think, that is already very encouraging People who participated were then motivated to take that same methodology into other spaces. So we had responses like, since taking part in the synodal process, we have looked at how to make the meetings of our parish or diocesan council more spiritual, more uh, we've started to use the spiritual conversations to make those more synodal spaces. And we find that it's given us a better quality of conversation, that we feel more connected, that we're experiencing the, the time that we give there as, as a spiritual experience as well that people felt confident in facilitating Mm -hmm. the listening experiences, but where they didn't feel confident was explaining to people where this is all going, which is understandable. So Mm -hmm. that was a barrier for people, that uncertainty about the future. So yes, we're listening to people's concerns, but then what happens next? So you know, we have the infographics about how we do the listening at diocesan level and informs the national synthesis and it goes to the continental assemblies and it goes to the synod of bishops. Mm-hmm. And we've tried to explain to people as well how we're moving through cycles mm-hmm. of listening where we're seeking to achieve ever widening, ever deepening circles of connection where we're drawing more people into the conversation and with each uh, round going a little deeper so we're not just repeating the same concerns again but listening to people and then going back and saying have we heard you right and if so what does that mean so Mm -hmm. the key thing is at every level to identify the pastoral actions that can be taken Mm -hmm. That's where it has been a bit more challenging in some contexts where people had less experience. So some of the ways that we've found that we've been able to help that is, first of all, through the peer support. So by by bringing people together from different dioceses and have them sharing experiences, you know, you can steal ideas from next door. Well, you know, hearing about what people did as their follow up experiences They're very simple things around welcome and hospitality that people have been able to pick up and implement very quickly. Uh, One example I heard was a diocesan group 
that in their synodal conversations, they felt like the clergy were a bit left behind, that priests were a bit outside of the process. And it prompted them to have some very intentional conversations with the priests about their sense of the process. And it opened up conversations around the priest's own well-being and their concerns about their workload. And so their first pastoral action is going to be a day of care for clergy Mm. to help Mm. support them Mm. in their their self-care and to help them feel valued and appreciated. So there are lots of very simple ideas like this. And I think what has really struck us from the research is how hopeful people are despite being very realistic about the challenges and the context that we're coming from and how willing they are to to continue on this journey. Nicola, to my delight, one of the things we have in common is that we both attended Trinity College in Dublin. I was there much before you, but I was struck in my uh, time at Trinity of the dominance of two themes. One was just the precarious nature of peace as a as a theme and the second was the the presence and role of the church and i am really struck in listening to you and and so admiring of your leadership and your work in in this space it's almost as though your your work on peace was a kind of perfect prelude to your work in helping the church heal from the abuse crisis. Uh, Could you say something about how the Synod has helped address the abuse crisis and helped affect healing in, in the church? Well, early on when I took up this role, I was asked to write an opinion piece for the Irish Times, really setting out how I saw the challenges and what I thought the that we could do through the synodal process to address them. And I stated in that that one of my hopes was that it would contribute to the healing of relationships within the church. Mm. And that line has been picked up. Every group that has invited me to speak, someone has quoted that back to me. And it just really reflects where so many people are coming from in their engagement with this theme. Mm. I think in the first instance, it created a space where we could hear more of the stories of abuse, hurt and alienation. They're very difficult to listen to, but it is a necessary process for us to go through if we're going to learn the hard lessons. And I think the recognition of that is now becoming increasingly widespread. And for so many years in Ireland, as in so many places, the suffering of victims and survivors was compounded by the silencing of their experiences. So beginning to reverse that has in itself made a contribution towards healing. Undoubtedly, some of the most prophetic and hopeful voices that we have heard in this process so far have been the voices of the victims and survivors. And we need to acknowledge that we owe them such a debt as a church. And for all that we've heard you know, coming out of the research that I mentioned from local leaders about how this process has been hope-filled and life-giving for people, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the courage of the victims and survivors who stood up to their abusers, who challenged those who were indifferent to them. 
at great personal risk and cost and they have made possible so much of what we've been able to do in this space. We're also much more conscious of their needs. We can already see the synodal process helping us to be a much more pastorally sensitive church, more conscious of the needs to be trauma-informed, to be sensitive to language, to the experiences that people are bringing into the room. Uh, One of the things that's surprised me in a positive way about the first round of synodal listening was the fact that it prompted many people at local level to ask questions about the pandemic experience which turned out to be very important very valuable and very healing for people and there too there are also experiences of trauma and I think that's something that just wouldn't have happened without the context created by the synod and yet when it happens we can see why it was so necessary and it really does help to heal relationships so all of that learning has been incredibly valuable and it's in our national synthesis the very first section says you know we need to engage with abuse as part of the story of the church and some people have argued that it is the lens through which all else needs to be viewed And I think we see very clearly the intersection between the different forms of abuses of power, of which the abuse of children and and vulnerable adults was the worst manifestation. But in terms of the, the vision that we're building for the future, we see that that's only part of the story that we need to engage with. So I think the the synodal process has helped um, in terms of our motivation. It's given us an extra push to be intentional in creating the spaces where we explore these very difficult chapters from our past. And it's also giving us some tools to help us to do that and building the confidence, particularly of local leaders in dealing with these issues that they know are out there in local congregations but perhaps haven't known how to create safe spaces to have those conversations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These are really sensitive topics, and we just I re- appreciate your candor, your sensitivity, your willingness to not shy away from these conversations, particularly in your role, and I know that you've been doing that for years um, and are quite skilled at it. And I'm also just really encouraged as I listen Um, about your emphasis on the necessity of telling and listening to people's stories. Uh, I love that you said that this has been a process that provides hope and is light-filled. I'm wondering, as you spoke about this, um, as you've been listening to people throughout Ireland and Britain, what are you hearing uh, from people in regards to what parts of the church do people hope to see and grow and expand? Meaning, what are people hopeful about as it relates to our church and its role in the world? I think a big underlying theme is that people are hopeful that the synodal process in helping us to have better conversations, better dialogue and discernment within the church will help us to have better conversations about our faith. They're mm. concerned about the tone of public debate around issues of faith mm. and belief in the mm. public square. 
and where increasingly it's very difficult to talk about your faith, even at the level of the, the family dinner table to bring up issues around faith is seen as somehow divisive, like it might spark a conflict and they want to see better conversations. They're encouraged by what they're seeing in the synodal process where it contrasts with the polarization and the debate and the struggle for dominance that we're seeing in so many other spaces. And instead you have people coming together and at the heart of it is the recognition of what we share in our identity in Christ. Mm -hmm. And then with that, the recognition that we're coming from different places, different experiences, but we're on a journey together and that search for understanding people are realizing Mm -hmm. that actually that's fascinating. That's a lot more interesting than having a very polarized debate between people of two extreme views that are not interested in understanding each other, but just shouting each other down. So having better quality conversations, feeling more confident in talking about your faith with other people. Mm -hmm. And then from that, to be able to, to share that, to bring the values inspired by our faith into more spaces mm-hmm. and they want to see a church that is more engaged on the big social justice issues of the day where people are more confident in articulating what Catholic social teaching says about issues like homelessness, migration, asylum, about how we respond where people are feeling left behind, alienated. They are very keen to see the church address some of the challenges and the limitations in our pastoral care to date especially Mm -hmm. when it relates to issues of sexuality and relationships so people who have felt marginalized and alienated because of their sexuality because of their family circumstances they see in the synodal process something that is creating a more welcoming church, a church that is ready to provide support to people wherever they're coming from, wherever, whatever their circumstances, challenging this image of church as a place of judgment and where people are going to be excluded and marginalized. Mm-hmm. One of the most hopeful um, expressions that I've heard is from grandparents who really want to be able to have conversations about faith with their grandchildren and they've felt that because of what's happened in Ireland with the abuse crisis the loss of trust in the church also because of the failures in our faith formation where we've relied heavily on the school system for schools to be the place for sacramental preparation and faith development that there's really a generation that's been skipped. And so the young people of today are not having the same opportunities to engage in faith as previous generations. And so for grandparents, there's that sense of, well, you know, they handed on the faith to their children. And if their children then chose to walk away, but they don't see their grandchildren having the opportunity to experience a faith in Christ in the first place and so the nations and explore what faith can offer them so a big focus as well on younger generations 
I'm so glad to hear you talk about that because I wanted to dig in a little bit with you today about um, young adults and um, just what's happening with young adults in the, in the church in Ireland and Britain. As uh, you may know, we have an uh, annual summit. Our next one is in February. That's coming up. It's focused on young adult leadership in the church and co-responsibility. And over the past year, we've been meeting with this incredible group of young adult leaders and surveying others to get a sense of like, what matters to young adults of the church? Where are they hanging out? What issues do they care about? What makes them feel connected? Um, so, and we've learned that you know they're deeply committed to uh, a church that is authentic, a church where they feel a sense of belonging, where there's trust. Uh, they have the opportunity to deepen their faith, um, and that. We know that the church values these things at its core as well. So we're just eager to hear uh, about your experience of listening to young adults um, in your context and their, what are some of their uh, experiences, their unique perspectives as, it re- as in terms of their relationship to the church and its role in their faith lives young people who are excited that the synodal process potentially opens up new opportunities for leadership where previously they felt that opportunities for leadership in the church were very limited and that there really wasn't very much space for young people. So there's certainly something there that is hopeful and encouraging. We've seen um, youth leaders as part of diocesan delegations to our events But we're also realizing that there's a need to reach young people where they're at. And it has to begin with a listening to understand the particular challenges that young people are facing today. So I think older generations don't really fully understand the pressures for young people of living so much of your life in a virtual space. They really don't understand the pressures that young people are under in terms of their mental health the particular Mm -hmm. impact that the pandemic has had on them, how much Mm -hmm. it has cost them, how young people feel frustrated that their fears about the climate crisis are not really understood by older generations. So there are some significant gaps there that need to be overcome and the synodal process offers the opportunity for young people to really articulate their concerns and hopefully be heard in a way that's Perhaps they haven't been up to now. And I think sometimes young people have felt that their engagement in church events has been quite tokenistic. And here's the space where we listen to the young people. Mm -hmm. But then over here, we have the space where the decisions are made. And so there's an opportunity in the synodal process to address some of those gaps, try and bring people together. Um, It's still, I think, one of the, the weaknesses that local leaders are reporting, engaging with younger people. And when they talk about those who are not present and what has saddened or concerned them about the process to date, the absence of youth voices has often been part of it. And it really just underlines the need to be intentional and where people have been able to design really creative youth-focused events. They have achieved really good engagement and there's been a lot there to build on. So I think more sharing of of those experiences as we go on will hopefully help with that. And also just recognizing that as part of the culture change 
that is required if the way that the church organizes yes. its meetings and events is geared towards people who are at a later stage in their lives, at a later stage of their careers, the times don't suit young people, the ways of engaging don't suit young people, the language is not language that they're familiar with, then we're going to be putting multiple barriers in front of them. So we're already learning uh, some valuable lessons about where those challenges have been encountered up to now. And hopefully we'll be able to address more of those as the process moves forward. I do hope you can join us at the summit because those are the exact topics we're going to dig into. And I am really excited to hear from both young people and people who have been working alongside young adults to see, to, to make sure that we're engaging in the way that you're asking of us and young people are asking of us, which is to respond to what their interests are and where they're finding joy and places to flourish in their faith. Yeah, I think it- it was encouraging to me that leadership was such a significant theme. Uh, admittedly, at this stage, we're still talking about a relatively small cohort of young people. But I think that in itself, that there are young people there saying that we take our faith very seriously and we want to identify opportunities for leadership. We haven't been given enough support and encouragement up to now. And we're hoping that the synodal process is going to address that. I think that's a really positive message for us to take into the next stages of the work. Nicola, we have been so fortunate to have you today. Uh, Your experience, your wisdom on so many of these important areas is really, it's humbling. And we're very, very grateful for for your work in the world and your presence in the world. we often talk about these efforts on a national or global scale, but what can individuals do? I mean, this, this question really points us to the final question that we, we ask each of our guests, which has to do with what can each of us individually, if we commit it to doing right now, what could we do that would promote peace, that would make a, a, the world a better place? Well, I've been going around meeting groups in lots of different contexts from the international level down to um, attending, speaking at novenas in in local parishes. And I bring the same message everywhere I go. I say to people, every conversation counts. Don't underestimate the value of your personal outreach your willingness to ask the pastoral question, to listen. You don't know when you may be the first person, the only person who's been willing to ask that question, hear that story, that you could be creating a really significant opportunity for someone to share something really important. Give them that courage to find their voice if perhaps they felt marginalized, uh, unheard before. It's something that we can all do if we bring just the right spirits to the conversation and through practice develop our skills. I think people ask me often, you know, how do you create the conditions for a peace building dialogue? And I say, you know, it is very, very simple in its essence. It's about hospitality, genuine hospitality. So in Ireland, that comes down to a good cup of tea. We know the difference between a good cup of tea and any old cup of tea. 
Um, and uh, if you spend time in Ireland, Kerry, you will understand what I'm talking about. So it is about making people welcome, that their presence is valued, and then showing genuine interest in hearing their story. And in opening up those stories, we find the points of connection. And to be honest, Irish tea really is the very, very best. <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly think so. <laughs> Nicola, thank you so much for joining us today. Really, you are such a sign of hope in this world that is desperately, desperately crying out for hope. Thank you so much, Carrie and Kim. It's been a joy to talk to you. And thank you for all that you're doing to, to bring this vision of hope and renewed leadership to the church. It is always a joy to host the Catholic Leaders Podcast. A special thank you to our terrific colleagues who make this podcast possible, to our eloquent and inspiring guests, and to you, our deeply appreciated listeners. We're especially grateful for the production support of Jenna McAndrew, Leslie Rodriguez, and Kate Alexander. Original theme music by Rachel Taylor, and as always, the generous sponsors of Leadership Roundtable. Before you go... Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.